Registration is now open on What's Your Name's Yucatan Tour 2024. Join us in Mexico as we walk in the footsteps of Zazel Ha, learn traditional Mayan cooking, tour Mayan ruins, snorkel with sea turtles, and so many more off-the-beaten-track adventures with our wonderful little band of kindred spirits. Spots are going fast, so sign up now on our website at whatsyournamepodcast.com. We can't wait to see you there. This episode is made possible by our Patreon supporters. Zeb Potter, Skylar Collins, Julie Gray, Robin Brown, Mary Jones, Jessica Smith, Kim Hokinson, Janelise Cannon, Jill Harrigan, Jamie Lang, Maria Carla Sanchez, Heather McKinnon, Valerie Jacobson, Chantel Oliver, Eric and Carolyn Shumway, Katrina and Kristen, Tamzane Weir, Caitlin McTaggart, and Lindsay Cummings. You can become a patron for as little as $1 a month and help us create more episodes of What's Her Name? Katie. Hi, Olivia. Imagine for a moment you are out riding your horse with your three-year-old son. You step off the horse for a moment to open a gate and you look down and you see a rattlesnake. Ah. Obviously, you shoot it with your trusty rifle. Obviously. Two more snakes emerge from the bushes. Oh, Then more. No. Then more. No. And you suddenly realize that you are standing in the middle of a rattlesnake migration. (gasps) You are surrounded by dozens, hundreds of rattlesnakes. We're talking like Indiana Jones in the pit level of snakes here. And they are between you... And your horse, and more importantly, your kid. Wow. What do you do? Um, freeze? No, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what I do. <laughs> but like, with rattlesnakes, that's what you're supposed to do, right? Hold perfectly still, and then they decide you're not a threat and they go away? But you have to get back to your kid before uh-huh. the snakes get to the horse, who throws the kid into the rattlesnakes. How many bullets do I have? Good question. You have four, and uh, you've used one. Uh-huh. What I do is die. That, yes. <laughs> what happens? What Kate did is pull a no-hunting sign out of the ground huh. and start just absolutely bashing snakes as fast as possible (laughs) with a no hunting sign oh that's no that can't be true it can't be true but it is One hundred percent totally true. Fantastic. I love it. She estimated that it took approximately two hours. No. To fight her way back to her horse. To kill enough snakes to be able to make a dash for her horse. That's the stuff of nightmares. This incident alone, Mm -hmm. which gave her her lifelong nickname of Rattlesnake Kate. Oh, it's amazing. So good. That would be enough to justify including this woman in our podcast yeah. lineup. Yep, alone. Uh-huh. Just her name, even. The aftermath of this story is exciting enough. But happily, everywhere I dug into this woman's story, I found fascinating material. That filled me with delight <laughs> and sometimes terror slash sorrow and just continuously blew my mind. This woman's life was wild uh. and unconventional and utterly unexpected on pretty much every level. And I absolutely could not wait any longer to share her story. So I won't. <laughs> so here we go. 
I'm Olivia Mickle. And I'm Katie Nelson. And this is What's Her Name? Fascinating Women You've Never Heard Of. The best possible guest to help us tell this story is also the person who first introduced me to this story without even knowing it back in 2020. Okay. When I bought tickets to what sounded like an amazing new musical called Rattlesnake Kate. Ah. For obvious reasons, 2020, that oh. show did not run. Uh-huh. It did finally get to premiere in 2022 when I was not able to get tickets because I waited too long. So imagine my delight when an email popped up in our inbox with some totally unrelated but very exciting news, which we'll break a bit later in the episode. And I read the name Neela Pekarik at the bottom of this email and went, what? Because Neela Pekarik is, of course, a Grammy-nominated cellist and singer, a core member of the triple platinum folk rock band The Lumineers the, for eight years. The Lu- Oh my. I love- <laughs> yeah. The Lumineers. Oh my gosh. That's her. Song of the Summer 2012, hey. Yeah. Oh. And the composer of that Rattlesnake Kate musical, which I almost got to see and then didn't. <laughs> Still bitter about it. Uh-huh. And of two solo albums, one of which premieres in two days. Wow. So obviously, obviously, I immediately reached out to her to ask if she would come and talk to me about Rattlesnake Kate. Cool. And luckily, she said yes. In fact, she agreed to meet me at the Greeley History Museum, where it all started. Ah! Tell me this whole episode is going to be a musical. It is! <laughs> because she has also agreed to allow us to use her no. album, Western Woman, which is the music from Rattlesnake No Kate. way! And... Her first album, Rattlesnake, which was the original concept album. Oh my gosh. Okay. From which the show emerged. So f- from here on out, do we sing everything we, we don't get say? to say? Yeah, I'm not singing at Neela Pekarik, just oh. so we're clear. Oh. <laughs> All of this started when Neela Pekarik stumbled across the most unexpected artifact imaginable on a casual visit to the museum one afternoon. My name is Neela Pekarik. I'm born and raised in Colorado. And we're here at the Greeley History Museum talking about my favorite person, Rattlesnake Kate. I was a student up at UNC and my roommate, Brian Cronin, and I were just kind of adventurers. And Greeley's a relatively small town, not a ton to do, and I say that with affection, but we found ourselves in the Greeley History Museum one day, just kind of curiously popping in, and I saw the story of Rattlesnake Kate, which is this incredible folklore that is true about a woman from kind of the plains of Colorado. She lived in Hudson, which is just a short ways away from Greeley, and she became infamous in 1925 for this very strange encounter with a rattlesnake migration. She was out on horseback with her three-year-old son, Ernie, and hopped off the horse to open a gate and found herself in the midst of a whole heap of rattlesnakes. She had about four bullets in her rifle, and so she plucked a no-hunting sign from the ground and began clobbering the snakes and did so for two hours, was dehydrated and exhausted, but somehow walked away unscathed, as did her three-year-old son and the horse. I thought as someone who is from Colorado, it was so odd that I had never heard about her before. It was the snake story that kind of got me interested. But as I started to research more of her life, I was really hooked on the kind of person she was and the kind of life that she led. I felt like I had a connection to her. I thought there was something so interesting about feeling a connection to someone that lived a hundred years before I did in a rural part of Colorado. I still felt this kinship with her of feeling a bit misunderstood sometimes or unseen or unheard. Let's jump back to the main event here. After the snake massacre. Okay. Kate stumbles to her horse, makes it home, sleeps for 14 hours or whatever. 
And the next morning goes into town to warn folks about the rattlesnake migration. Say, hey, you got to keep an eye out for this. Don't don't get stuck. I didn't know there was such a thing as a rattlesnake migration. Rattlesnake migrations are something that I kind of wish that I didn't have to know existed. Thank you for telling the rest of us. Yes. (laughs) Sorry. We encounter them up the mountains, especially in the spring. But now I have to fear hundreds of rattlesnakes. No. Probably not that close to people. You don't. Well, it's so, you know how all the snakes go to one place and lay all the babies? I didn't know they did that, I thought. Oh, so they'll lay a bunch of babies all together, and this babies, like, over winter... In this one place? ...swarm together, like in a cave. Yeah, and there will be, like, thousands of snakes. Nope. All in a big ball, Uh, keeping each other warm. Let's talk about cake. (laughs) (laughs) So then they spread out from that, and that's when you get the migrations. Like, some go this way, and then they break off as they go. Okay. Well, that makes sense because, like, we often will encounter young ones in the mountains in the spring. And they're yeah. kind of everywhere and very jumpy and really yeah. scary. Yeah. And that's okay. probably what was going on here. Okay. Okay. So she tells her story to the men at the bar, presumably in town. And they, shockingly, don't, don't believe, believe her. her. Wow. I can't believe it. <laughs> That you know, there's a lot of, oh, yeah, sure, mm-hmm. probably like seven snakes. And she said, no, like, you guys, I I might have killed like a hundred snakes. There were so many snakes. And, mm-hmm. and so a group of men go off to where she said this happened and start counting dead snakes and counting dead snakes and counting dead snakes. Eventually gather up the dead snakes into three large wash tubs. Which is my favorite visual ever. has killed 140 rattlesnakes with a no-hunting sign. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) They call the newspapers. They bring the snakes back, string them on a string, and call Kate in for a photo. What year is this? Ah, Where are we? Good question. When do you think we are? I'm like the Wild West, 18... Well, photo. So, 1880. Before I said photo, when did you think this was happening? I would have said 1870s. Yeah, this this is clearly the Wild West, yeah. right? Obviously. This is a tale about the West, about a woman of the West. This is a love song to the with golden Where are we? Where do we stand? Land, This is 1925. Wow. So this photo is amazing. We've got it on our website. Unbelievable. She's standing behind a string of dead rattlesnakes in a cute little hat and dress. Just giving a smile at the camera. Wow. And this photo goes the 1920s version of viral. Yeah. It makes national news. It's in every paper across the world. She is a sensation. Cool. Her story is everywhere. And that was exciting. But Kate was also very handy with a needle and a qualified taxidermist. Uh, of course she was. 
Yes, you are. Mm -hmm. She had at some point taken a correspondence course in taxidermy with the Northwestern School of Taxidermy in Omaha, Nebraska. Okay. So she hung the snakes to dry, skinned 47 of them. And like any normal person, fashioned herself a flapper-style gown that resides here in the museum. Okay. (laughs) What's she going to do with the dress? Just... Oh, wear it, obviously. Because she's Rattlesnake Gate. For events, she's yes. She's going to go on she tour. She will wear it for public events. Okay. Uh-huh. Newspapers will come and take photos of her, do interviews. She'll make a bit of money. State fairs will, like, hire her to make appearances. Yeah. She also made a belt, shoes, and made a necklace out of a few dozen of the rattles. Ah. Oh. And I have to say, having stood in front of this dress with my jaw on the floor... It's upsettingly beautiful. So we're looking at the dress. <gasps> matching shoes, headband. Wow. <laughs> rattle necklace. And if you look closely, I always love seeing the actual little stitches. Like thinking yeah. about her like hand sewing this dress in 1925. Wow. <laughs> and it's interesting because it's sort of this flapper style, but I feel like it's like armor. Like there's yeah. such a toughness to it. That is incredible. She was really good. I mean, this is not a thrown-together dress. No. (laughs) And the shoes. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine wearing that. How would that feel? I know. Probably not comfortable. Yeah, but like you said, kind of like armor. Yeah. (laughs) You'd be invincible in this thing. Totally. Wow. Lots of good pictures on our website of this. Okay. Thank you, Greeley History Museum. It is now in a climate-controlled, airtight, light-controlled uh-huh. case. And thank goodness it was kept intact because that's how I stumbled upon the story. Gowns and glamour, a woman's weapon, used effectively. Not a damsel, don't give a damsel, armor's what I'll see. Describe the cut of it. So it's made in the 20s. It's a flapper it dress. Like... It's a flapper ah. dress. And it's this is not just kind of like throw some rattlesnakes on a dress. The craftsmanship of this thing is beautiful. It's huh. like a genuine work of art. She knew what she was doing. It, it's unbelievable. There's some amazing pictures of her in the dress, too, that are oh. just wild. It's so gruesome for some reason, especially imagining the rattler yeah. necklace. Oh, it's, it's just like gruesome. But then also, they were attacking her yeah. and she won. And it's yeah. like her great triumph. Yeah, it's very, it's very unsettling. Yeah. She also stuffed at least one of the snakes in an upright, like just about to leap at you position, which she would stand on the table in the corner. And then when reporters came over to talk to her or whatever, she would just kind of casually allow them to notice it lurking (laughs) at their side on their own and watch them freak out. She apparently found it absolutely hilarious. Okay. So I thought the story of the snakes was really interesting and unique. And I I joked that it was sort of my party trick that I would just bring it up all the time, any chance I got. And I dressed up as her for Halloween one year in college when I was a student here. And it was just sort of the spiel that I would give over the years. But it wasn't until probably around 2014 that I started writing actual songs about her. I was at that time playing with the Lumineers and was touring with them full time not with any direction of wanting to write an album or a musical or anything. I just started kind of writing these songs about her and sending them off to friends and making demos at home. And it quickly got out of hand. (laughs) So um, I wrote an album called Rattlesnake that was put out in 2019, a concept album about her life. Eventually, she was invited to be part of the Colorado New Play Festival. The DCPA paired her with an award-winning playwright named Karen Hartman to create a new full-length musical, the guaranteed run, before a single word has been written. Cool. That's how confident they were in this story and these storytellers. And history has proved them right. 
because the show got rave reviews. Songs were just pouring out of me. Every time I'd come to this research center and read through more of the letters, and it was like, oh my gosh, that's a whole song. I think she was the kind of person that didn't connect with people that well. A little bit ornery and kind of just lived in that skin authentically, which I think is a very modern kind of idea that we're talking about living authentically and being who we are. And I think she totally did that for better or for worse. That meant that she spent a lot of time alone because it wasn't an archetype that people were comfortable with. Sweet is not in the list of adjectives I would use to describe cake. I think at the end of the day, she was a hustler. Even the stuff with the snake dress, it was sort of in the entrepreneurship spirit of mm -hmm. like, how can I use this to my advantage? How do I use this to put food on the table for me and my son? Yeah. But I think the fame part of things that came with it was challenging for her. As more of like a naturally introverted person, I sort of felt a kinship with that as well, where I've had this sort of push and pull with moments of my career where I've had a little bit more notoriety and always feeling like you want to control that narrative and. It, to be on your terms, that just doesn't happen with any kind of fame, even if it's quick 15 minutes like she had. There was a period of time where I was getting recognized at brunch or at the grocery yeah. store and same thing where you're like, don't look in my cart or, yeah. <laughs> or I'm not in the mood. I kind of got the sense Kate felt that way. Yeah. Like she would chase people off her property if they came to try to take photos of her, but she also was calling reporters and putting the dress on yeah. and she made the dress. And so I think it was this sort of push and pull of probably what a lot of famous people feel. Yeah. She married her husband, Jack Slaughterback, <laughs> at some point. So yes, her name is Rattlesnake Kate, Kate Slaughterback. Slaughterback. Okay. The rumor with him was that he had run off with a bunch of her money. She writes in the letters that he ran off with about $5,000, which is like $75,000 today. It was like all the earnings she had from any quick flash of fame, never to be seen again. It's just so heartbreaking. He sings a song to her in the show, and I think we probably made him a little hunkier in the show than maybe Jack's father back was. I haven't seen photos, but, but the idea is that he's just oozing with charisma and charm, and how could you resist? And so there's a song in the show called Jack's Request, and I'm putting that on my new EP of songs. And actually Brian Cronin, who I mentioned at the beginning that was with me, we're college roommates here at UNC. He sings that song on the EP, and so I love that he's kind of wrapped up in this story with me and he recorded on my first album. So it's kind of fun to come full circle with like discovering the story together and then making music out of it together. <laughs> another five times. Wow. But she kept the Slaughterback name because of course you would. <laughs> Once you are Rattlesnake Kate Slaughterback, you are never giving that name up under any circumstances. Right? <laughs> None of these marriages lasted very long. None of them seemed particularly happy. She was probably a pretty difficult woman to live with. And... Mm perhaps had pretty bad taste in men. Perhaps had some pretty bad PTSD. Oh, absolutely. And you can see that spelled out pretty clearly in some of her letters. Her greatest love affair, if we can call it that, was with a man she never met, Colonel Charles D. Randolph who called himself Buckskin Bill, <laughs> sent Kate a fan letter shortly after her story first appeared in the national press. 
And the two began a relationship by letter that would last Aww. 38 years. Oh, I love that. And reading through a lot of that letter correspondence that they've preserved here in the museum, I think it's that validation of finding somebody that made her feel kind of seen and heard and confiding in that person who is kind of a total stranger. And I think a lot of modern people can connect to that kind of thing. Buckskin Bill is a fascinating character on his own. He built himself a huge persona as a Western poet in the sort of dime novel, adventure, professional character genre. Wrote about how he had gotten his nickname from a guy named Panther Pete at 19 years old after a particularly exciting Wild West adventure in Deadwood. Wow. Oh, the names. He wrote thrillingly about his various adventures as one of sort of the last great cowboys in Montana, Canada, Wyoming, California. He claimed to have met Calamity Jane in a saloon in 1909. Great stuff. problems like that calamity jane died in 1903 and panther pete is a fictional character from popular novels of the era and there is no record of charles ever actually earning the rank of colonel in any branch of the military and most of the battles he claimed to be involved in happened several years before he was born so he's the classic tall tale Wild he West. He is the ultimate tall tale Wild West. Okay. Basically, here's a good obscure Wes Anderson reference. Basically, he's Eli Cash. Ah! He actually spent most, if not all, of his life living in Davenport, Iowa. No way. No way. I happened That's to live great. in Davenport, Iowa for three years. Uh-huh. It is like boring Midwest suburbs now, but... Then, mm-hmm. it was a wild town oh. at that point. There was no need to make up fake adventures when you live in Davenport, Iowa. Oh, interesting. This is a town so infamous, it shows up in Johnny Cash songs. Really? As where the women run off to, to cavort in Davenport. Oh, I had no idea. Maybe this place was, like, too close to home to be exciting. You know, that, Uh like, every teenager thinks their town is boring. Maybe that's where he heard all the stories and just absorbed them into his own biography. He he did write a letter as a teenager about seeing a Wild West show. It Mm -hmm. clearly made a huge impression on Mm -hmm. him. Maybe that formative moment, he decided that was going to be his thing. And whether he could make any of it actually happen or not, he was a cowboy. Okay. He was a wonderful correspondent. Kate was clearly delighted to pick up such a charming and apparently accomplished pen pal. Those letters were really eye-opening to just hear her talk from her own voice. She's very funny and she's very quirky and, you know, kind of makes fun of herself at times, but is also very boastful and brave and would send him these photos of her dressed up in these cowboy outfits and send locks of her hair. And it was, there was like a romantic side to this. Colonel Randolph also modestly called himself the Poet of the Plains, (laughs) wrote reams of poems about the West, and he wrote at least 21 poems dedicated to Kate herself. My favorite being Rattlesnake Kate's Passionate Love. (laughs) Rattlesnake Kate's Passionate Love. Nobody knows except Buckskin Bill how Rattlesnake Kate could love. She would coil all around her part of the plains and hug and kiss and squeeze. Pouring out her Irish love, she charmed the scout. She was his turtle dove. Nobody will ever know the secret love of Buckskin Bill and Rattlesnake Kate. Wow. Wow, what a gem. It's not 
great literature. <laughs> but it came from the heart. Did it? <laughs> but it is a fascinating window into their relationship. Yeah. Especially given that they never met. And it's all kind of like, I don't know, I always like to say Buckskin Bill is kind of a catfish. He was really, he was a writer, he was a poet, so I think he was really fascinated with this Wild West woman out here in Colorado, but I think he was kind of capitalizing on this fantasy and had no intention of actually meeting her. And she talks over and over, like, come visit me. And at one point, they make a plan, he's going to come here. And she goes to the train station on the day he's supposed to arrive, and he doesn't show up. She goes back the next day, and the next day, she finally gives up and writes him back and he's like, oh yeah, something came up. My mother took ill or something that feels very like, mm -mm. I've seen this on an episode of Catfish yeah. before. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's just, it's a little bit heartbreaking. Regardless of the quality or the impact of the relationship on the participants, Kate's letters to the Colonel are our most intimate window into her life. Huh. Some letters are flirty. Some are just very mundane and regular, the kind of thing you'd write to your brother. <laughs> Fort Lupton, Colorado, February 16th, 1932. As you have never seen me or know my ways, you may be greatly disappointed if we should ever meet someday. Although I am healthy and strong for my age, which is 35, just the turning point in a woman's looks, but I lack a long way from being a flat tire. There seems so much good in me that I have hosts of friends and lovers if I'd let them be, but I want to raise my little boy up to manhood before I marry again. He had one stepdad, and things were not very pleasant for either of us, but I am not judging all men by him, as I know there are a lot of good men. My last husband lives eight miles from me, married again, and have a little girl, but he often stops and visits me, and always tells me I am a good sweetheart, but not a good wife. My brother is sure good to his wife and family. I often tell him I wish I was blessed with as good a man, but he tells me that maybe someday the right man will come along. Maybe I won't know the right man. Anyway. I am happy as it is, and I can be happy, whether the sun shines or heavy clouds hang low. Fort Lupton, Colorado, March 9th, 1932. My dear friend, received your most welcome letter last week, and I will say I am sure delighted with your poem. We have had awful bad weather. Snow fell for three days, and there is about a foot and a half on the ground. It is very disagreeable to do work out in it, but I am sure glad to see the moisture. I'm going to saddle up Goodeye, Ernie's pony, and ride five and a half miles to Hudson to get some groceries. Sure hate to, as all the badger and coyote holes are snowed over, and a fellow might get his neck broken. This was the cause of me getting my arm broken between wrist and elbow, and when my pony went to get up, he kicked me in the neck and shoulder, breaking my collarbone and dislocating my arm at the shoulder. Sure was painful, and I had to walk a half a mile home and then drive my old Ford five and a half miles to have it set while Ernie throttled the gas for me, and that called for a hired man to milk my nine cows and do the field work which I sure had to baby him to get him to do things halfway right. So that was a dear lesson for me running my pony, and now I am more careful. By the way, do you have a car? Okay. And then she'll just casually throw in some little detail, which she clearly does not see as very important. And it's like, what? Fort Lupton, Colorado. August 12th, 1932. Well, I sure have been in a heck of a shape. Two weeks ago yesterday, I was closing a wire gate and an electrical storm was on, and the lightning struck a post a few yards away 
and it came down the wire and knocked me unconscious for five hours, and Ernie was badly shocked. I was badly burned on my left side, from my shoulder down to the calf of my leg, and tore the heel off my slipper. I sure feel awful at times, but I'm getting over it fine. I guess I'm too tough to croak. Wish you were here. I might play you a game of pitch to see who washes the dishes. What is, what is this <laughs> woman's life? Yeah. Wow. She had, it was like a three-mile trek on horseback to, just to get the mail. Like, she had to earn those letters <laughs> to trot three miles to go check the mail. Then World War II intervenes. Huh. Buckskin Bill is working as a guard at the Rock Island Arsenal, which is right across the river from Davenport. Kate became a Red Cross nurse, stationed maybe in Korea and Japan. Oh. It's a little bit confusing how she got certified, when she got certified, that kind of thing. They have found at least one photo of her in an official nurse's uniform. And she wrote in some letters about being a Red Cross nurse stationed in Asia during the war. But again, there's no records. We even went looking for those, and there was no record. Hard to track that down. So I think for me, reading through the letters especially, I was like, I'm just going to take her word yeah. for all of it. Her family also tells another story that Kate used to tell them, that while Kate was a nurse in World War II, she once had to parachute out of a plane that was crashing, <laughs> and everyone on the plane died, and she broke her hip. Ooh. When she parachuted out and then presumably has to, like, you know, extricate herself okay. with a broken hip. There's no hard evidence for this so far. But, you know, uh, unlike Buckskin Bill, who is believed wholeheartedly by everyone he ever meets throughout his life while being an unabashed liar, many people have learned to their dismay the inadvisability of disbelieving Kate Slaughterback when she tells you she did something. <laughs> so I'm personally going to be erring on the side of true until proven otherwise. Okay. She did kill 140 rattlesnakes. I'm guessing she parachuted out of a plane. She definitely did professional nursing at some point. And she had a pretty good record when it came to keeping her neighbors alive in often desperate circumstances. She was the only kind of medical attention these people could sometimes get. And so multiple neighbors that she had, which again, a neighbor's probably like miles and miles away. In the middle of like a big winter storm, she went and helped deliver these babies. All I want is to meet my match. You'll love me cause I'm funny. You'll love me cause I'm free. And I'll laugh the loudest at your jokes. I'll be the cleverest in hopes. You're forever lassoed by my ropes. Part ways for a bit. Jump rooks for a bit. Drive home separate and get right together. When the two eventually pick up correspondence again after the war, something has changed. Oh, he says, uh, I'm married, actually, but I would really love to continue to correspond with you. So if you could just send your letters to this post office instead, that would be great. Oh my gosh. And she does. Oh. They write for another couple of decades. Hmm. She continues to write him, but sort of justifies it in her head and starts addressing the letters to him and his wife. Like, yeah. I hope your wife is doing great. And I think, again, just loved the companionship and someone that was interested in her and made her probably s still feel interesting. That's the kind of relationship we don't really have anymore. Pen pal relationship from afar. Well, we have or online. Guess, oh, yeah. Online relationships yeah, right. are... Like, this is her Same online kind of boyfriend. Yeah. Right. That you never really meet. Right. You have personas that... That song from the guild, Do You Want to Date My Avatar? Yeah. <laughs> we almost never get a 40-year span of personal reflections on life 
from a regular person. Yeah. yeah. Let alone a woman like Kate. And if we do get them, like sometimes we'll get diaries, but it's almost always religiously motivated. And it's like mm. you're recording your religious experience or you're like very conscious that you are the ancestor. Um, never just like daily details. Yeah, it's it's a nearly unique kind of correspondence <laughs> here. And the insights that the letters give us into Kate are poignant and sometimes really heartbreaking. She had a line somewhere in the letters that I ended up using as a lyric. I've been told I'm a good sweetheart, but not a decent wife. And I think that's like such a heartbreaking thing to mm -hmm. hear. But also makes me, I don't know, it, it evokes so much and what kind of person she was of like, she's probably really fun and fun to be around. She likes to stay up late and smoke cigarettes and dance on the bar. But yeah, hard to live with. Just all those little tidbits that, that pop up in the letters. There was one, she had been sprayed by a skunk, and she said she was so miffed about it. And I thought that was like such a funny word to use about anger. I just feel like there's a lot of rage inside of her. And I, I'm always drawn to stories about women and rage and how that manifests in various ways. And so there's a song on the album called Miffed that's inspired by that. I mean, there are so many things she could have been mad about. I just, I love the sort of like diminutive word for anger as miffed. That's the socially acceptable amount of anger for a woman <laughs> yeah, to have, exactly. right? had one son, Ernie, who was on the horse for the incident. Oh, yeah. Ernie is adopted. Is he really? Who knows? There exists somewhere in an archive a photo of Kate visibly pregnant. It's possible this is her son, and she just claims he is adopted for matters of reputation. Huh. I was talking to someone at Centennial Village about this. And even the way this woman was talking about it, like in modern days, she was kind of like scandalized by it and was whispering. And I was thinking like, even today we're talking about this, like, <laughs> so I can't imagine in the 1920s what the kind of rumors were around this kind of thing. However, she was also married six times. Yeah. It surely would have been just as easy to say that one of her husbands was the father and go on. Yeah. She has two different stories about how Ernie arrives in her life, which is makes it a bit confusing. We don't know. Neela Pekarik, in the show, decided to make Ernie adopted. And chosen family of the human or animal variety is absolutely a major theme in Kate's life. In writing the show, you know, we chose to write a story about a person that spent most of their time alone on a farm. And so it was like, who else is in this musical? Of course, Ernie, we portrayed a couple of the husbands are sprinkled in there and Buckskin Bill, the, the letter correspondence. She also had friends that were passing through that she would host and that kind of... She never talks about these people by name. There was no sort of like best gal pal that she'd get together with and to confide in or anything. There's so few names mentioned in letters. Of course, she talks about Ernie a lot, but then she talks about her horses by name. We've got Brownie, we've got Daisy, and these horses that, like, she had these companionships. So it's appropriate that her horse, Brownie, who is definitely the most important person in her life, 
aside from maybe Ernie, is played by a human being in the musical. I think her relationship with Brownie was something I was really drawn to, partly because she just talks about her so often. We decided to bring Brownie to life because musicals are magical. It took some convincing of our director. Because <laughs> Coleman at first, he was like, wait, 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 what? There's going to be a horse on stage. And I said, yes, and I'm going to play her. <laughs> he was like, what? But there's something about a cello that is like very horsey adjacent, mm -hmm. I think. And so it wasn't a horse in a stupid way, but in this kind of magical, like, witness to Kate's story. And as if she had a best gal pal in Brownie. And so I wore sort of like a vintage looking writing costume with my cello on the front. Brownie just kind of sings and plays the cello and doesn't talk a lot. Part of that's because I'm not like a superb actor. <laughs> I was playing to my strengths. It's like, I'll just sing everything. And that's how Brownie would communicate is kind of these like cello sounds. But I, I just thought so much about like, why don't we know any of her friends' names? We know people like that, you know, that like are kind of ornery, but they're so sweet around their dog or something. Yeah. And people that just connect more to animals. I thought it was like a really sweet aspect of Kate, who's often so tough and ornery, but like melts a little bit when she's with her horses. Yeah. And it just makes sense when you remember she's a single mother in the middle of nowhere yeah. on a farm in the West in the early 20th century. Speaking of her farm, she lived in a chicken coop while she built herself a house. Cool. And she built herself a house. She poured the concrete. Yeah. She hammered the nails. She laid the planks. She built herself awesome. a tidy little four-roomed cabin completely on her own. Awesome. And she ran her farm almost entirely by herself. Wow. She kept hiring farmhands and then firing them immediately because she didn't trust anyone else to do the work as well as she would. Uh. And it was 160 acres that she had, so it was an outrageous amount of land. She was a very resilient woman. Mm. She was fearless to the point of, some might say, recklessness and or total stupidity. She would harvest her corn alone on a mechanical harvester this particular harvester had actually been outlawed because so many people got maimed or killed by this machine. Interesting. It's basically a giant triangular blade, uncovered, unprotected. If the horse moves at all while you are stepping off this machine or you stumble or you misstep, it will cut your leg off. <laughs> and nobody was using this machine anymore. Mm. But she insisted that only men were stupid enough to get off the front of a harvester. <laughs> so she, being a woman, didn't need to worry about it. <laughs> Farming in Colorado is hard at the best of times. You have a very short growing season, very high altitude, very little water. So she's always hustling, always looking for a way to make a bit more money. She made moonshine in the pig pen during Prohibition. Oh, of course. That's Knew great. the pigs would cover up any telltale smell, ha. so that's very clever. Ernie talked about some kind of like revenue IRS kind of person, man coming to the farm and trying to get information out of him. They would ask him about it, try to get information out of this kid and yeah. bribe him with candy and bananas, which yeah. I think is so funny. And then when she ran too short of money, sometimes she'd pull out the dress and make an appearance or two, earn a bit of cash. Otherwise, the dress lived in a trunk where her young nieces and nephews, eventually grandnieces and nephews, would sneak peeks at it anytime they visited. It was incredibly thrilling. Mm -hmm. They talked about, you know, peeking into the trunk to see the dress. She eventually landed on a novel new side hustle. She heard that scientists would pay for rattlesnake venom. Oh. So she started farming rattlesnakes. No, of course. Then you milk them for the venom, mm, uh, which is, uh, uh. at this point, apparently, you put a sponge on a stick uh -huh. and you jab at the snakes. Oh, my gosh. Until they bite on the sponge. And then you wring the sponge out into a jar. Wow. And mail that off to California. 
incredible. She did that for a while, and then she eventually realized that's a lot of work. So she started just cutting off the snake's heads and mailing the heads to the scientists instead. Oh my gosh. Get it yourself. Yeah. Wow. Wild. Wow. She's rattlesnake Kate. She was reportedly still getting into bar fights well into her 60s. Wow, what a lady. She would occasionally show up in the rattlesnake dress and dance on the bar. She talked constantly about wanting to move to California, wanting to live by the sea. Mm. She would go visit friends there, come back rejuvenated. But she never actually moved. She never left her farm. It's just, I don't know, I feel curious about, like, is that, was that her MO a little bit, though? Like, looking for the fight, always. Kind of choosing the harder option and picking the wrong men and all the things that just, it made life really hard. Not to, not to victim blame or anything, but she, she chose the harder route almost every time. I mean, even choosing to live in the rural part of Colorado, you know, like you could live in Denver in a city where you don't have to look for water or whatever the case may be, or you can have a car. Rattlesnake migration. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Like she's choosing the hardest thing every time. She could have farmed, you know, 30 miles away. There's so much easier farming. There's Mm. so many things she could have done and she always makes her life hard. Her relationship with Ernie and other family was often strained. She was a hard person to live with, it seems. It would be hard to live with someone who always chooses the hardest way. Yeah. She was complicated, messy. But I think, I mean, as as much as I think she's kind of our flawed hero, I think we painted a love letter to her. And I want to see more women like that portrayed in film and television. I think so often we have these male archetypes like Tony Soprano or something Mm -hmm. that like we love them even though they're so despicable and flawed. And we don't have as many women, I think, portrayed that way that like she did this thing and we love her and respect her and she's deserving of love and companionship even though she's ornery or she killed a bunch of snakes or whatever the case may be. You just make room for all the stories. Three weeks before she died, Kate donated the rattlesnake dress to the Greeley Museum, along with other artifacts from her rattlesnake legacy. She died in 1969. Wow. The museum is awesome, and they are very committed to getting her story out there. The dress in the exhibit obviously, but they also have Kate's cabin. Oh, they took it apart, labeled each piece, moved it to Centennial Village, which is kind of a reconstructed pioneer area, put it all back together, and you can go and visit Kate's house. But Kate is also sort of becoming a bit of a local mascot. The museum recently commissioned these delightful t-shirts of Rattlesnake Kate, which have been a huge hit. It's in very high rotation in my wardrobe. I got you one too, don't worry. You did? (gasps) Let me see. It's so cool, I love it. Grit. Oh, that's fantastic. The rumor is you may eventually be able to buy that shirt online. For now, it is just in the museum gift shop, which is awesome, by the way. Okay. So, listeners, if you're ever anywhere near Greeley, Colorado, which you will not ever be, If you're in the Denver area, (laughs) highly recommend making the trek out to the Greeley Museum. Yeah, if see her house. You can even get a Rattlesnake Kate-themed cocktail at the distillery down the street. Or a Rattlesnake Kate coffee at the shop next door. That's great. Just make a whole day out of celebrating this strange and wonderful woman. Fabulous. You make that pilgrimage, then you go the other direction to... Cripple Creek. Cripple Creek. And make that pilgrimage. Yeah. And then back to Molly Brown. Well, I foresee a what's-her-name Wild West tour. That's what I foresee. It needs to happen. Uh On this occasion, I took a slightly different route for my Kate Slaughterback pilgrimage. I set out to find Rattlesnake Kate's grave. Of course. Which is about 15 miles away from the Greeley Museum. So I'm here at Mizpah Cemetery. 
and I was a little worried about finding Kate's grave without a map. I realized I don't need to be concerned about that. It's tiny, charming, in the middle of nowhere. There is literally a goat dairy next door, <laughs> which I think Kate would have loved. Um. What is her stone like? Uh, I have to say it's a little startling. Mm. I had heard that she had specifically requested that her stone read Rattlesnake Kate. Okay. And it does. <laughs> it's awesome. And it is fun to imagine folks just kind of like stumbling Who's unaware on it while visiting yeah, cool. their dead relatives or whatever. Right. But it's also normal. Oh. It, it looks exactly like our grandma's grave. Just it's like, like a that pink, granite slab. Yeah. Granite huh? with roses engraved in the corners. Whoa. It's unsettling. It's wrong somehow. I was picturing a snake sculpture or some kind of eccentric thing. No snakes. Like, her grave should be a weathered marble slab, mm, mm-hmm. not like a mass-marketed yeah. stone. Yeah. And I think that that brings us back to that discussion. This story is in the wrong time, mm. somehow. It shouldn't be happening in 1925. Mm-hmm. It's, it's 1885. It's 1865. Yeah. Kate belongs in the Wild West in capital letters. Yeah. But she was alive for Woodstock. That's weird. That's disconcerting. Uh-huh. Wow. She's out of her era. She's stuck in the wrong narrative. And it kind of feels like maybe she felt that way too. And that's what I love so much is because Neela captures her story so beautifully in the music. She captures the woman in this like magical way. More than that, Neela captures somehow that sort of poignant, indescribable oddness in mm-hmm. her music. That feeling of existing out of time. Mm. Like she's she's not in the wrong time. She's out of time. Mm-hmm. And the music is timeless and kind of untethered mm. from any specific era. It's tied to mm. Kate, not Kate's context. And so that somehow just takes it anywhere it needs to go. And it's coming out in two days? Western Woman. I'm going to We'll listen. have all the links, of course. I don't have any other way mm-hmm. to describe it. It, mm-hmm. it feels magical. And it sticks with you permanently from the first moment you hear it. Just like Kate. The exciting announcement that I mentioned we would give. Oh, yeah. Neela Pekarek is currently working on a new project, which is a musical about Adelaide Herman, <gasps> magician. Nuh-uh. Really? Really. Oh, I think we Yay. said about six times in that episode, why hasn't right? someone yeah. made this a show? Oh, yeah. She is. That's exciting. It's going to be great. Enormous thanks to Neela Pekarek. And we highly recommend getting your hands on a copy of her new album, Western Woman, when it is released this Friday, June 30th, at a launch party slash concert at the Swallow Hill Music Festival in Denver. Tickets still available. You can find sneak previews of some of the songs now on YouTube and Spotify. I'll link all of that, as well as her first album, Rattlesnake, and some clips of the show, all kinds of amazing photos and resources about Kate on our website. Kate Slaughterback's letters were read by Emma Porter, and The Passionate Love of Rattlesnake Kate was performed by Mark Henderson. Huge thanks also to Chris Bowles, Miranda Todd, and everyone at the Greeley History Museum for their enthusiastic support and help. And thanks also to Sarah Brooks and her wonderful website, GreeleyHistory.org. Our intern is Katie Boucher. What's Her Name is produced by Olivia Mickle and Katie Nelson, and this episode was edited by Olivia Mickle. Yeah, I'm not singing at Neela Pekarik, just oh. so we're clear. Oh.
I will. I don't care about dignity. You can cut that. <laughs> no, that's the, that's the end tag now. <laughs> that's happening. 